Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burda, news editor at Foresight Health. On today's episode of Foresight Friday Roundup, we're going to be talking about the affordability of medical care during and after the COVID-19 outbreak. And that's, of course, assuming there's an after. We're going to be talking about the cost of testing uh, patients for COVID and the cost of treating COVID patients and how COVID will affect the affordability of medical care for all patients. Our resident experts on Foresight Friday Roundup to comment on these topics are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Gary Bisbee, co-founder and executive chairman of the Health Management Academy. Hey, Dave. Hey, Gary. How's it going? Morning. Before we talk about affordability, let's uh, let's talk a little about mobility. I know your shelter-in-place or stay-at-home orders have been lifted. I'm curious if either of you have ventured out for the first time, and, and where did you go? Dave? Well, uh, I had a bit of a revelation last Friday. We took our car into the shop, which is about three miles from here and you know and they were great had masks on and um place looked like it was you could eat dinner on the floor uh but i realized that um that was the furthest i'd been from my house uh since the middle of march so you can draw a very tight circle around uh, the areas we've been to and most of the time when we're going out it's uh, it's to get groceries so um yeah mobility is uh, definitely been compromised and i was rediscovering things like division street in chicago which i used to run <laughs> by all the time so there that's, you go that's great G- gary how about you uh, have you gotten off the black uh, i did go uptown here a little town in new canaan to pick <clears throat> a takeout uh, Friday evening was both amused and shocked to see how many people were there without masks. Uh, and <clears throat> the most humorous aspect of it was um, I wasn't eating at this restaurant. They had tables outside, but the waiters all had masks, except one waiter who had a mask, but it didn't cover his nose or fa- or mouth. <laughs> What do, you, what do you call it, a bandana? Yeah. I don't know what that is. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that was, I guess, a failed attempt. I'm not sure what to call it, Dave. You know, uh, Roberto Duran, the boxer, said no mas, uh, you know, when he was in yeah. that famous championship fight. I, yeah. You know, Gary Bisbee says no masks uh, when he goes out. <laughs> right. All right, right. Baby steps, right? Baby steps. Uh, so uh, let's step into today's topic, which is uh, affordability. Uh, Dave, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are you reading about the cost of testing for COVID and the cost of treating patients who have uh, contracted the disease? And maybe more importantly, what, if any, innovations have you seen in making testing and treatment more affordable for patients? Let's get the ugly out of the way first on the cost side. Uh, you know, for too many in healthcare, every day is Christmas. Uh, the average cost of a COVID-19 test is 100 bucks. Uh, New York Times ran a story this week about a clinic in Texas that's charging 2,300 bucks. Um, hospital treatment bills for COVID-19 can be astronomical. There was a, a study in the um, 
in the Seattle paper about a patient whose uh, bill was 181 pages and, and totaled 1.1 million. Um, with the government committed to covering uh, all COVID-19 related treatment costs, uh, you can just see the revenue cycle departments at hospitals uh, getting totally revved up. Uh, it, it reminds me of uh, Joe Flowers, uh, the healthcare economist, uh, two iron rules of healthcare economics. Rule number one, uh, people do what you pay them to do. And rule number two is people do exactly what you pay them to do. So as long as we're paying for activity and there's an ability to manipulate the payment, we're gonna see examples of, of profiteering. Uh, let's get off that topic, it, it's too depressing. Uh, but let's go to the uh, uh, to the innovation side and, and really I, I think some remarkable things uh, in some ways we already know to be true, but it's just wonderful to see them um, come out. So Metro Health in Cleveland, which covers, um, you know, a, a largely inner city uh, low income population, um, was really worried about its uh, hospital and particularly its emergency department and ICUs getting overrun by COVID patients. So they set up a 24 seven hotline uh, to handle calls coming in, completely staffed it and uh, widely used. And what, what it did was it kept people in the home and not, not only was it a, a hotline to help with treatment, it, uh, it helped also with sort of activities of daily life. So people needed medications or groceries or so on. They, they had services that, that provided those and fortunately, the, um, that kept both transmission low in, in that service area. So not as many people got infected. And it also kept a lot of people from overwhelming the hospital and so on. So uh, the power of these home care models to, um, to treat people uh, not you know, early on before they get really sick um, is incredibly powerful. Uh, here in Chicago, Oak Street Health, which is one of these advanced uh, enhanced primary care companies that, that treats primarily dual eligibles, so older, poor, and often very sick people, within a two-week period of time switched completely um, from a, a clinic-based model to a virtual-based model. Um, like 98% of the interactions were, were virtual. And it's same same story as with Metro Health in Cleveland, continuous active communication, getting whatever services you need and, and so on. Um, you know, what are the lessons of this? Uh, I think there are two. Uh, one is we're not gonna change the way we deliver healthcare until we change the way we pay for healthcare. So what both Oak Street and Metro Health have in common um, is that they really have capitation arrangements. They, they own the healthcare risk um, for the, the members or the population that they cover. And that's really the second, uh, the second lesson is where there's full risk contracting, there's remarkable innovation in healthcare delivery. Great. Uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, Gary, same thing. Uh, your thoughts on testing and treatment costs and, uh, and more importantly, you know, what, are, what are people doing uh, to make those costs more affordable? Well, Congress passed legislation to cover all tests, including diagnostic and uh, antibody testing without cost sharing or prior authorization. 
which up to that point sounded pretty good. The guidance from the agencies, however, weren't that clear. And so the agencies basically brought in uh, medical appropriateness as determined by an attending provider. So that gave the insurance companies the opportunity to um, come up with differing views of how they were going to reimburse for, for testing. And obviously, um, you know, there's a range of insurance companies, so there's a range of how they go about doing it. So in this case, I think the culprit really were the agencies who, who didn't adhere to the direct purpose of that legislation. And, and as Dave said, uh, you know, the almighty dollar uh, prevails. And so I think that what we've got is a situation where insurance companies aren't all of them covering completely tests and the various costs thereof. That's the biggest problem that I see right now. The innovative side, I mean, there's there's a lot of innovation. If you look at the different types of testing that's come out, uh, there's been an amazing amount of um, work done not only by uh, independent companies, private companies, but by health systems. So we've seen a lot of innovation. That's not the problem. The problem right now is the coverage, which I think was clear with the legislation passed by Congress, was not clear with the regulations issued by the agencies. Got it. Uh, Dave, anything to add to Gary's comments, especially on the regulatory side? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's always um, it's always hard for regulators to get it exactly right out of the box. Uh, you know, particularly when, uh, as Gary mentioned, the almighty dollar rules. So uh, as the regs come out, uh, you've got lots of very smart people trying to figure out how to um, uh, take advantage of them uh, within legal boundaries. And that leads to much of the bad behavior that we see. But clearly, the government's intent is to not let fear of payment um, get in the way of people receiving care. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in reality is as much as half of the population is uh, not seeking care, either because it's inconvenient or they're scared about the cost. So um, we've got a real brewing problem on our hands because when people don't um, engage in preventive and care and, and disease management, um, at some point we see an explosion in, um, in crisis care, so. Just to amend, Dave, what you're saying is you use the term government. I think in this case, Congress is pretty clear. Yeah. I think the agencies were not, and that's what gives rise to the gaps that uh, some of our insurance friends are able to, uh, to, to uh, capitalize on. I, I still like the the old Reagan phrase, uh, Gary. You know, trust but verify. <laughs> you, right. know, you you want people to do the right thing, but uh, make sure yeah. they're doing the right thing. Yeah, um, I agree. Got it. Well, thanks, Dave. Uh, that, that, that's a good transition into topic number two, and that's uh, affordability for all patients in a, a post-COVID world. Uh, Gary, how do you see the issue of affordability playing out for all patients? after the pandemic ends, uh, you know, 
what will happen to prices, what will happen to premiums, what will happen to out-of-pocket costs, uh, you know, what will happen to patients' ability to pay for care? Yeah, well, it's a great, it's a great question. And the bottom line of it is there isn't a single short-term answer. We, we, the last half of uh, the last decade, we began to focus on costs. That led to affordability. And many of us said that this decade would be the decade of affordability, that we need to, as a country and as a health system, figure this out. So I think that post-COVID, we're pretty much where we were before COVID, uh, except that the government has now issued how many trillions of dollars to uh, try to approach the COVID issue, uh, we've got to pay that back at some point. We have interest on a debt and so on. And so <clears throat> macro view on this one is that I think the expectation would be that governments are going to put more pressure on providers, on rates, uh, because they um, have to. And so the providers are looking at how do we deal with the fact that the rates for Medicare and Medicaid uh, are continuing to be squeezed, uh, that's not going to help affordability. I think we'd all agree with that. So what's going to happen? Uh, is there going to be a solution over the next 10 years, which is some kind of government, uh, broad government pay, uh, single payer, universal coverage, I was speaking to Redonda Miller, the CEO at Johns Hopkins Hospital yesterday in an interview, and of course, talking about the Maryland all-payer model with, with Redonda. So there's another model that waivers existed since the mid-70s, plenty of experience there, plenty of data, a good opportunity to look at that model and say, is that something that we ought to adopt for the for the US, I'm not suggesting that we should, I'm just making the point that I think the frustration uh, on the part of our consumers, uh, the employers, the governments and the providers is such that there's going to be a lot of pressure to change the way our health system is paid for to get back to what Dave was talking about a bit ago uh, and who knows where that's going to end up. But it wouldn't surprise me that we have another governmental uh, program of some sort, financing program being implemented um, over the course of the next uh, decade. Got it. Thanks, Gary. Uh, Dave, what are your thoughts on prices, premiums, and patients' uh, ability to afford care in a post-COVID world? And, and do you agree with Gary on maybe there's another big uh, government health insurance program coming down the line. Oh, that's why it's so much fun to come on uh, the show every Friday with you guys. We can tackle these these big questions. Anyway, Gary, it was great to hear Redonda's name. I'm a, I'm a big fan of hers. And you being you, I'm sure you got into her life story of growing up in Appalachia in very low-income uh, circumstances, going to Ohio State, and obviously now becoming one of the leading healthcare administrators in the country. I mean, just so if you you don't if you haven't had a chance to listen to Gary's interview with Redonda Miller, please go do that. Um, and you know the thing about the all payer situation in Maryland, 
Um, it still ultimately pays for transactions. It's the same amount, so you don't get the price differentiation in Maryland that you do in other places, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but they still have too many amputations and not enough money going into disease management. Uh, you know, to the future, I mean, the old school healthcare reaction by the big players is costs go up, premiums go up, out-of-pockets go up, people suffer. Um, and we're certainly seeing evidence of, of that in some of the discussions about where, where insurance premiums are going to go. Um, I think we've also seen with COVID just, uh, you know, and we've talked about this in previous sessions, how the, the flaws of the current system, fee-for-service payment system, are on full display. Um, I guess the way I look at it, I believe everyone in America deserves appropriate, accessible, and affordable health care appropriate, accessible, and affordable health care. Um, and it's incumbent on the industry to figure out how to deliver that or we're going to get handed to us, um, uh, you know, some, some bad policy decision, whether it's rationing or price controls or, or, in my opinion, Medicare for all, the way it's currently configured, at least the way Medicare is currently configured. So I think the real question is, you know, how will the American people uh, greet the industry's attempts at reform uh, in the post-COVID COVID, uh, environment? Will they greet it with, with pitchforks or with roses? And it's all going to come down to on whether or not we can deliver the promise uh, as a country, as an industry, uh, of providing appropriate, accessible, and affordable health care to everyone in the country. We just have to do it. Uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, Gary, do you think we'll be having a, another AAA card in our wallet soon? Well, as a follow-up to what Dave was saying, uh, uh, let me almost phrase this as a question, Dave, which is that after World War II, uh, we saw the NHS in Britain. We had employer health benefits coverage in the United States. And the question from a public health standpoint is, is the COVID crisis enough of a crisis to cause major revamping of our healthcare financing system. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is, uh, Gary. I mean, I, I, I think all the pressures were already there and this is just thrown uh, accelerant on, on the transformational forces. And the real question is, will we um, be like or do what other countries have done, which is uh, migrate toward a more government-funded, uh, government-highly-regulated uh, um, system? Um, or will we create something that's uniquely American that, um, uh, you know, accomplishes the the goal the AAA goal uh, with um, with a more pluralistic model I, I think that's that's both the opportunity and the challenge um, and uh, but I, I don't think the crisis is going away and geez with the with the sheer number of dollars we're throwing not only at, at covid but um, on um, at the economy um, just to keep it afloat uh, um, at, at some point, um, you know, the ability to 
borrow endlessly is is going to uh, gravity is going to come on and and we're going to come down to earth. So I yeah. I, I do agree that uh, uh, we're at a we're at a crisis point, inflection point, and we can go up or we can go down, but we probably won't stay the same. Probably won't stay the same. You make the point about uniquely American, which, given the fact that healthcare is twenty percent of the gross domestic product in this country means to me two things. One, is not going to change quickly, and two, whatever change will be uniquely American. Got it. Got it. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Gary. Thanks, Dave. Let's talk a little bit about next week. Uh, Gary, what do you see as the big story in healthcare uh, next week? You know, it's tough to pinpoint it to a week. I do think that how the consumer is reacting is the story. They are coming back to the to receive care, they're coming back to the ambulatory clinics, they're coming back to the hospitals. The question is going to be twofold, which is one, how much virtual will continue to be a major point of healthcare? And two, will people kind of get the pitchforks out as Dave has suggested and demand a change in the system? Those would be the two questions. That's not necessarily going to be answered next week or even be the biggest story next week, but it's a story I think we need to track over time. Got it. Uh, Dave, what do you think everyone in healthcare will be talking about next week? Well, one of the first things I do every morning is I get up and I, I go to the page on the New York Times that shows the number of new cases reported uh, it's a seven-day average, but the number of new cases each day. And the the lowest number over the last few months has been 18,000, and the highest has been 37,000. And uh, we're starting today, that number was 27,000. So we're starting to creep back up again. And our inability to really see dramatic declines in these case numbers is becoming worrying, particularly as we're reopening. So I I think a story this week is this reopening and uh, the people not wearing masks and sort of tired with COVID, is, is that going to lead to uh, an uptick in cases and, um, you know, some some potential governmental responses to that? So I, I, I'm, I'm worried about that. Dave, you headed to Oklahoma City? <laughs> I'm, uh, Gary, I'm, 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 it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough for me to even get downtown Chicago. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was just three miles before. Let's, yeah. let's not go overboard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, well, thanks, David. And thanks, Gary. Uh, lots to chew on before next week. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.